So I want to talk to you guys a little bit today about um, church architecture. So, you know, we, we like to give you some freebies here every once in a while at Life Path. We like to think that you walk out of the door smarter than you walked in. And so I'm just going to give you a little bit of interesting stuff here. And forgive me if you know this already, but one of the things I think that's super, super cool um, about church architecture, I'm talking about like cathedral. So this is, um, I think this is Salisbury Cathedral. Um, <clears throat> when cathedrals were built, like from the Middle Ages all the way through, like the big Gothic cathedrals that we see, um, they always had a very specific type of architecture. And so the, the, the right-hand side is always east. Like, so that's where the altar would be because you face the altar and you face east because that's where Jesus is coming back. So all these, these uh, uh, cathedrals and churches were built to face east. Um, and you've got like this, the yellow part in the middle is the nave. That's kind of where everybody kind of sat and faced in that direction. And then you have the green part there that's the transept. And where those two things come together is called the crossing. And that's usually there maybe was a dome there or maybe there was a tower. And if you haven't seen this already, if you haven't caught it yet, let me turn it the correct way for you to see what I'm talking about. All cathedrals were built in the shape of a cross. And I just think that's super cool because people so, so long ago uh, in the year 1000 or 1200 or whatever are thinking about, hey, the place we worship should be shaped like the cross of Christ because that is how we are living our faith. We are living in a, we're worshiping a, worshiping in a cross-shaped um, structure and a cross-shaped room because we should be living a cross-shaped life, a cross-shaped faith. That's the series that we're in right now. Uh, I was told by a friend yesterday that I can't, we can't remind you enough of what the series is that we're doing because Keith and I put these things together and we're like, hey, let's do a series. And you guys show up and you're like, I didn't know we were in a series. We're talking about a cross-shaped faith because it's Lent, because we need to understand that as much as we as Christians celebrate the resurrection and we celebrate the life and we celebrate the teachings of Jesus and learn the teachings of Jesus, that moment on the cross, the cross is pivotal and really crucial in our understanding of the way we live out our faith. So a few weeks ago, Keith talked about how the cross shapes our understanding and our dealings with violence. Right? And then last week, um, Keith talked about how the cross helps us understand shame. And it helps us remove shame in many, many ways. So today I'm going to talk about the cross and how in living a cross-shaped faith, we are going to be freed from our guilt. Guilt that comes from sin. So yes, we're going to talk about sin and forgiveness today. And... Um, I know this is a huge topic, but I'm going to try to touch it really carefully and just understand why it's critical to understand during this season of Lent that the cross is vital to how we live our faith and what it does for us. So, give you a little bit of a, an overview just so you understand where we're headed today. I'm going to talk about how the cross brought forgiveness once and for all. I'm going to talk about how the cross has removed the power of sin. I'm going to talk about how through the cross we choose to live differently. And then finally, I'm going to talk about through the cross we view others differently. I'm giving you this ahead of time so you know like when the end is coming. Because <laughs> you know sometimes, I know you, you're sitting there going, okay, how, how many points does he have? How much longer? So number four will be the end. So you'll know when I get there. So first of all, <clears throat> the cross brought forgiveness once and for all. This is something we understand if we've grown up in church or if we've come uh, to faith in Jesus. Typically, we have at least had some interaction with the idea or the concept that the cross 
is what has brought about forgiveness. But I want to dive into this just a little bit more because it's, it's really important to kind of understand this. And Keith touched on this when he talked about violence a few weeks ago. The theological idea that God is so angry that he has to kill something in order to dispense forgiveness is just simply not correct. We don't serve an angry God who must shed blood in order to forgive. We're tempted to think that way because we connect the cross of Jesus where he died and shed his blood. We connect that to the Old Testament practice of the temple and the sacrifice that happened where blood was shed, uh, the blood of animals was shed, and we think, well, that must be the way it is. That's not the way scripture talks about it, and that's not really the understanding that we have. It's important to understand, first of all, that the Old Testament system, the forgiveness wasn't, it didn't happen because they killed something. There are plenty of, of instances, in fact, in Leviticus, in the, in the law, it says, look, if you don't have an animal, if you don't have a, a bull or a goat or something to shed the blood, you can bring, bring a bird. You can bring a small bird. Or if you're really poor and you don't have any animals, bring some grain. Last time I checked, grain doesn't bleed. Um, and the grain is already dead if you're bringing it, right? So it's not about the killing of something. It's not about the shedding of blood. It's simply about bringing something valuable to the temple in the Old Testament time, bringing something valuable to the temple to, to acknowledge, to say, I am in need of the grace and mercy of God. And they would do that once a year. So it's really important to understand that that's not really the issue. The other thing is that uh, Jesus, when, when it gets to Jesus, is that Jesus died on the cross, and yes, somehow, mysteriously, in that transactional moment, he actually paid the price for all sin. The sin from before and the sin in the future, and it's for everyone. One sacrifice for all sin for all time. When we go to God and we ask for forgiveness, and, and a lot of us have, have this practice of um, making sure that we confess our sins to God and confessing our sins uh, maybe sometimes to other people. Um, and, and in fact, my Catholic friends, there's a practice in, in the Catholic Church of you go to confession and you confess your sins to someone else, right? But it's important to understand that that act of confession is not the mechanism through which the forgiveness comes. Even for Catholics, even in Catholic theology, you go to confession because it's a good practice to make sure that you are um, um, acknowledging that need for forgiveness. When you confess your sin, when you ask for forgiveness, it's, it's simply to remind you that you need forgiveness. The confession of sin and the asking for forgiveness is not a transaction that you have to do. It's like, oh my gosh, did I, did I remember to confess that sin? Did I, rem did I ask for forgiveness for that? Because if not, maybe I won't get God's forgiveness. We have a tendency sometimes to think that there's a transactional thing that's happening. Like, I ask for forgiveness, and then I receive forgiveness. But in a weird way, if that were true, wouldn't it give you the power to forgive sin? Because the only way sin is forgiven if you, is if you take action. That's not the way God works. God's done it. It's over. It's finished. The sin has been forgiven whether you confess it or not, whether you ask forgiveness or not. But we ask forgiveness, we do this, and we, and we are taught through Scripture to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness because it reminds us of our need for God's grace. So I'm going to put a Scripture up here on the screen, but first, before I do, I, I want to uh, explain and understand that this is from the book of Hebrews. And every 
every once in a while, Keith and I will talk about Scripture and we'll, we'll make sure we say who is writing it, right? We're going to see several different Scriptures today, and it's important to understand that the book of Hebrews is written specifically, if, if the name didn't give it away, for the Hebrew people. It's written for the Jewish people who had an understanding of the temple and of the temple system and of the law. And so most of the book of Hebrews can be difficult for those of us who don't have that background to really understand what the heck is going on. But the book of Hebrews makes the case that Jesus has become our high priest, right? And he has taken on the function of the high priest of the temple, and this whole thing has been satisfied. So that's, that's in Hebrews. Um, we're going to look later at Paul, and Paul has a little different voice and a little different perspective. And then we're going to look a little bit later at something John has written who has even a different voice and a different perspective. But I just kind of want to set that up. So in the book of Hebrews, <clears throat> this is chapter 10, uh, it says the old system under the law of Moses. Now remember, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who it was, um, but the author of Hebrews is talking to the Hebrew people and trying to explain how Jesus is actually a fulfillment and a kind of a basically a cancellation of the entire law that, that, that had been going on before, the, the temple system. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. Right? So, so he's making the case that Jesus is the good, this is the good stuff that's come, right? The, 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 what we had before was just a preview. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So there it is. The author of Hebrews says it's not about the blood. It was never a blood sacrifice. It was a reminder. A reminder of the sins that you've committed to go before God and ask for forgiveness and offer something valuable. Verse 12, but our high priest, that is Jesus, just make no mistake, he's already kind of established that earlier. We didn't look at that part today, but... Jesus is the high priest he's talking about. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then, and this is the cool part, then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. So I want you to think about those words, for all time and the forever. Those words, that's what Jesus has done on the cross. Forgiveness has come for you, for me, for the people in the Old Testament, for the people in the year 3050, if the world lasts that long. Like, for everybody, forgiveness has come. And not only did it happen once in time, but we'll see this, uh, John sort of makes reference to it, we'll talk about that in a minute, but, but Jesus is still there at the right hand of God continuing to perform that function of interceding on our behalf, of being that forgiveness for us, all right? So, important to note, forgiveness has happened once for all time. The cross brought forgiveness for us. Second thing the cross did, the cross removed the power of sin. So, you know, there's this idea, well, gee, if I've been forgiven of all sins, even the sins I haven't committed yet, why can't I just, like, party it up, live it up, and sin, and got nothing to lose, right? Because I've been forgiven, Yes, you've been forgiven. That is a true thing. Okay? The, there's a reason, though, that we, that we don't want to keep sinning. 
Uh, and the reason is sort of commonsensical. Uh, but one of, one of the main things is that the Bible talks about this, that sin has this power over us to enslave us. Sin can, can lead to cycles of more sin, right? Keith talked about this a couple weeks ago again in the, in the violence message where he talks about, you know, if I punch you in the face, uh, not only does that cause damage to your face, but it causes damage to our relationship. And you're not just going to take that. You're going to likely respond with violence and punch me back in the face. And then the great thing that Keith pointed out is it never ends there, right? It's not like, okay, now we're even. Let's shake hands. We're good. No, it's like you punched me last. I'm going to punch you last. So the cycles of violence beget more violence beget more violence, right? So, so there's this idea of, of, of engaging in sin can lead to cycles of sin that end up enslaving us, right? Um, it's, the, it's the threes company paradigm, right? So those of you who are old enough to remember Three's Company, right? The classic sitcom from the 70s and 80s, right? Every sitcom had this idea of like in 23 minutes, it begins with a tiny little misunderstanding, usually a lie, but that lie leads to a bigger lie. Cover that up and that leads to a bigger lie. And then you get this terrible, horrific, and hilarious misunderstanding that we all resolve in 23 minutes and it's a funny show. But the idea is that one lie can lead to a bigger, can lead to a bigger, can lead to a bigger. So that sin can enslave we see this in addiction, not only addiction to substances, but addiction to, um, to, to patterns of behavior, addictions to power, addictions to money. Like we have this idea that when we engage in sin, that it has a tendency to enslave us. I think it's important to, to take a pause for a moment and define what I mean by sin. Um, because the Bible is clear about the law being abolished. In the New Testament, we say that there is no more law. Uh, but we still talk about how there is sin. If we've been forgiven and there's no more law, like Old Testament law, then what is sin? Just to, for frame of reference, sin is basically any behavior that takes us outside of the ideal path of God. God has some desires for us as people, that we live in love, that we live in peace, that we reconcile with one another, that we bring about his kingdom, like all these things, these kingdom values... That's what he wants for us. And any behavior that's outside of that scope, that's what we're going to call sin. Because sin actually in the Bible, there was sin uh, before there was the law. Paul talks about how there was sin before there was the law. Sin has always existed. The law brought it into focus. It helps us to, to identify it, to diagnose, right? So that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm helping you diagnose sin. Sin still exists and it basically it's anything that's outside of the scope of what God has for us, what God desires for us. So... The cross removes the power of sin because it kind of breaks that, that idea of enslavement. The other thing is uh, there's also natural consequences to sin. So um, as a parent, sometimes we leverage natural consequences and we allow our children to make their own decisions and experience. Like, oh, if I, if I don't wear my coat outside when it's 30 degrees, I get cold, right? And sometimes we let them make that choice because it's a good way to learn. Well, Sin also has natural consequences. You make a, you make a choice about a certain behavior and, and you might experience pain. You might experience brokenness. You might experience relationships that fall apart or are fractured. So sometimes that sin, that natural consequence of sin is something we want, well, all the time, the natural consequences of sin are things we want to avoid. We don't want those. So that's another reason we choose not to keep on sinning all the time, right? Even though we're forgiven, we're forgiven totally, the sin has consequences. And the cross actually gives us power to not sin. 
And this is what's really interesting. And so let me jump right into what Paul says. So this is Paul um, talking in uh, the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, um, all the, the letters, of, they were letters, right? So the book of Romans is actually the letter to the, the Romans. And the church in Rome was made up mostly of uh, non-Jewish people who had, had converted. And so he, the book of Romans is a great place to go and look for a really thorough and detailed explanation of exactly how all of this sin and salvation stuff works. And so this is, if you want to go look for yourself, it's, it's, a, great, it's a great thing. Uh, chapter 6 and 7 are kind of deal with this a lot. Um, but in, we're going to be in 6 right now. Um, Paul says this, he says, well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, like everything I just told you, right? We're no more, we've been forgiven, the law is no more. Since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. So he says it too, right? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin and you have become slaves to righteous living. I think that's a really cool image. I think all of us sort of understand being a slave to sin. We understand how sometimes it's really tempting to, to, to do things that aren't right or sometimes that we, like I said, there's patterns of behavior where we do something and that leads to another thing that's not so great and that leads to another thing that's not so great. We can understand the idea of being enslaved to sin. But have you ever thought about being enslaved to righteousness? When you live a cross-shaped faith, I just, I can't, I can't help it. I can't help but to do what is right because I'm walking in the way of Jesus. You literally, Paul says, you can be a slave to righteousness. That's what the cross does. The cross gives us the power to break the enslavement with sin and to become enslaved to righteousness. That, to me, is a really cool image. To me, this whole thing is about hope. It's about freedom. It's truly good news. We are not only forgiven and freed from sin, but we have been given the power through the cross to be enslaved to righteousness and to do what is right all the time. I think that is fantastic. The next point I want to point out here is uh, through the cross, we choose to live differently. Sort of building on the idea of being enslaved to righteousness we choose to live differently. Sin is a choice. We can choose to sin. We can choose to not sin. We can choose to, to live in that, that way, that enslavement to sin, or we can choose to live righteously and live in that path. The great news is, it's not always an either or. We, we often will, will accidentally slip into something that is sinful. And the great news there is that that forgiveness has already been taken care of. The forgiveness is done. We talked about that a minute ago. Forgiveness for all time. So if you sin, no worries. But choose to live differently. Choose the path that is not sinful. To fully experience life in Christ, we have to be on that path of doing what is right in God's eyes. Because it's, it's the way he designed life. Fullness in our relationships, love 
for the world, um, those kingdom values that we always talk about, that is the way of Jesus, the way that, that God wants us to live. And choosing to live in that way and choosing to reject the other is something that the Bible calls repentance. That's what it means to repent. Sometimes we get a little confused. Again, the language of the, of the Bible sometimes makes it sound transactional. It makes forgiveness sound transactional. You'll find things in Scripture that say, repent and then receive forgiveness of your sins. And it makes us think, okay, so is that, is that the prerequisite then? I have to repent. I have to like change my behavior. Because that's what repent means, if you didn't know. Repent is literally a word that means to turn and go a different direction. And it had applications not just in like spiritual life, but it had applications if you were talking to someone um, about something and you, and you were like, hey, change your mind about that and think about it a different way. You, you would use that same Greek word that appears that we translate as repent. It's to change your mind, to change your direction, okay? And sometimes we get the impression from Scripture that it says repent and then God will forgive you. And so we get all wrapped up with anxiety of like, oh my gosh, well, what if I haven't repented for that? And is he going to forgive me? And I'm here to tell you that the scripture clearly says your forgiveness is already done. It's taken care of. The reason the Bible talks about those things together so often is because it just makes sense. The repentance does not precede forgiveness. The forgiveness precedes repentance but if you've been fully forgiven if you've been washed clean of everything then it just makes sense for you to turn and go in a different direction and say wow i'm gonna i'm gonna walk in the power of love and grace that i have been given and i'm gonna choose to live a life that is good that's repenting choosing that path is something that happens after you've understood that the forgiveness is a reality it's not something you do to get the forgiveness this is really, really important stuff, folks. If we get it jumbled up, it causes us a life of anxiety. It causes us a life of stress. It causes us a life of guilt and shame. You are free from the guilt. You do not need the guilt. You've been forgiven. Choose to walk in the light. That's what John says. Choose to walk in the light because God is light. And we do that not because that's how we get forgiven. We do that because we've been forgiven. Does that make sense? Sort of a subtle difference, but, but that's, it's really, really important uh, to understand that. Let's look at what John says in 1 John. Um, he says, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. Notice the implication here that sin must be a choice. Because John is saying to the people reading his letter, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. I want you to not sin. Don't choose to sin. But I love the next line. He says, But if anyone does sin... Because I know you will. <laughs> if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. Remember what it said in Hebrews? He is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. He is pleading your case and it is a done deal. Case closed. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins but the sins of all the world. Sometimes we have trouble wrapping our brain around that. This is not the only place that says it. There's several spots in Scripture where it says the forgiveness that Jesus 
accomplished or, or the forgiveness that, that Jesus brought about through the cross is forgiveness for the whole world. Forgiveness for the whole world. Remember I said forgiveness precedes repentance. Forgiveness precedes choosing to live the way of Jesus. Does that change the way you look at things? That's a cross-shaped faith. To see the world through that lens, wow, everybody's already been forgiven? Everybody's been forgiven? Even the people who haven't even said that their behavior is bad, even the people who are still choosing to do bad things, even the people who haven't even acknowledged Jesus, that's how I read that. The forgiveness is for the sins of the whole world. John goes on uh, a few verses later. Um, this is in chapter 3. He says, Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning. Because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Really important to clear up. John is not giving you permission to judge other people. He's not saying, this is how you tell, folks. Children of the devil. You're not. No, that's not what John is talking about here. There are plenty of other places, even where John talks about it in, in the Gospel of John. Same author, right? John wrote the Gospel of John, so the story of Jesus, when Jesus says, hey, don't judge other people. You got a big log in your eye. Don't be talking about the speck in other people's eyes. So he's not giving us permission to judge, but what he's simply saying is, there's, there's a simple equation here. The people who have given themselves over to the way of Jesus, they're the ones who are doing what is right. Because once you do that, once you're walking in the light, once you're living in that forgiveness, you're going to continue to do what's right. You can't help it. It's a slightly different angle, but it's similar to what we heard in Paul just a moment ago. Slave, remember the slave to righteousness. This is the way John expresses that. He says you can't help it. Like You've been forgiven, you've been washed clean, and, and you can't help to do this because you are a child of God. And the people who are not children of God, they can't help but to go on sinning. Because that's just the way that works. So we reconcile these ideas. I said a moment ago, the forgiveness of Jesus extends to the sins of the entire world. But there is this added additional thing of, hey, if you really want to experience the fullness of life, life as a child of God, walk in the light, do what is right. And John sort of talks about that as that, that simple idea. What I'm trying to do is point out the fact that we do not have to worry about whether or not we are forgiven. We do not have to continually ask for forgiveness. We do not have to continually do anything to receive forgiveness. The forgiveness for you and for everybody is done. What we do have to spend our energy on is choosing the path that is the path of righteousness. Doing what is right. Think of it this way. If I spend most of my energy worrying that, or, or trying to make sure that I don't do something wrong, that feels different than if I spend most of my energy trying to worry about whether I'm doing something right. Does that make sense? I'm, if I'm focusing on not doing something wrong, aren't I being a slave to sin in a way? 
I'm just counting the sins. I'm like, oh my gosh, i got to avoid that sin, avoid that sin, avoid that sin. Forget that. Be a slave to righteousness and say, yeah, I know I'm going to screw up, but Jesus is taking care of that. So I want to be the slave to righteousness, and I want to do what is right and do what is good. That's being a slave to righteousness. So we choose to live differently because of the cross. The cross allows us to live differently. And finally, I told you you'd know when I was getting there. Actually, I don't have, can, if you've got slides, can you give me the next one? Thanks. Um, my thing got disconnected. Um, this is the last one, in case you're counting. This is number four. Um, through the cross, we view others differently. We view others differently. Now, I said a minute ago that, that the cross, the forgiveness that we, that we see that Jesus gives us on the cross is the forgiveness not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, right? So if we truly start to look at other people as forgiven, won't that change how we view them? Won't it change how we feel about them, perhaps? It should. We can't judge people. We know we've been forgiven. We know that we received this undeserved grace from Jesus on the cross. So how can we possibly look at somebody else and judge them? Because they've received the same grace. They are just as worthy as I am. I've received forgiveness. They've received forgiveness. We absolutely have to see other people through this lens of grace and mercy. So, not only am I not judging them, but if I receive grace and mercy from Jesus, maybe I should also extend grace and mercy in my own actions towards other people. If I'm living a cross-shaped faith, I have to see other people through that lens and treat them the way I have been treated by God and the way they have been treated by God to extend grace and mercy in this sense we're all one we're all the same now i'm going to go back to some writings of paul this is in ephesians and in ephesians he's talking to again a primarily uh, gentile group a group that was non-jewish converted to christianity and he's explaining to them how this whole thing worked if there were two groups that did not get along in the history of the world, it would have been Jews and Gentiles back 2,000 years ago. We see conflicts between different people and different ideo ideologies, and, and they're often really bitter and really terrible, like maybe <laughs> between Jews and Muslims today in the Middle East, or we've seen um, Catholics and Protestants even, like really violently uh, in, in places like Northern Ireland and other places. But these two groups of people, there was not just avoidance, but almost animosity, right? The Jewish people were just very much like, no, right? So the fact that Paul is about to talk here about how, how God has brought Jews and Gentiles together is a lesson for us to see how God can bring any two groups of people together, any multiple groups of people together, and create one people. So I want you to hear it in, in that way and, and read it through that lens. Paul says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. You catch that? The cross. The cross has broken down that wall of hostility. The cross is what unites us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations like we just saw in Hebrews, right? There's no more law. There's no more sacrifice. There's none of that. Jesus broke down that dividing wall of hostility. 
He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. If Jesus on the cross reconciled Jews and Gentiles, then Jesus on the cross reconciles us with anybody we have a conflict with. Jesus on the cross reconciles us with anybody else that we may have a different opinion of or a difference of, of idea or a difference of lifestyle or anything. Jesus on the cross has broken down the, that, that division. And so because of the cross, if we're living a cross-shaped faith, we should be seeing others differently. We should be seeing them as forgiven. We should be seeing them as worthy and deserving of grace and mercy. And we should be seeing them as part of one family, one people, one group. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Broke down the dividing wall of hostility. So to recap. <laughs> the cross brought forgiveness once and for all. It happened. It's done. No more law. You don't need to ask for forgiveness. You don't need to repent. You don't need to do anything. The forgiveness has already happened. Number two, the cross removed the power of sin. You don't have to be a slave to sin. You can be a slave to righteousness. The power of the cross gives you that power. But number three, uh, through the cross, we choose to live differently. Even though we don't have to ask forgiveness, we don't have to do anything to receive the forgiveness, we should choose to live a different way because we've been forgiven. We repent. We change our direction. We live a different way. And we choose what is good and what is righteousness, right? And number four, through the cross, we view others differently. We can't be judging people. We can't be making, making hierarchies of, well, this person or this group is more holy than this group. It's, we are all one. We have all been given the grace of God all through the cross of Jesus.